0: the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson.
1: And today I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame.
0: Today we have a very special guest on the program, the first guest from the philosophy department, that is, Chris Sheriff, a PhD candidate from philosophy. How are you, Chris?
1: I am very well.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks very much for being here. Uh, how did you initially get into philosophy? It seems like a fairly niche uh, subject area.
2: Um. Yeah, so true um I started <laughs> so I started uh, I did my undergrad at uh, University of Toronto Mississauga starting in 2004 I went in intending to do uh, English and psychology took philosophy in first year because I needed something around out and it was an area that interested me uh, this was before philosophy was really a subject taught in uh, Ontario high schools I understand it's much more taught now but that wasn't an option I had but huh. took it um, I had a really really phenomenal uh, prof in first year, Jackie Bruning, um, who I wound up having courses with throughout the rest of it, and I decided um, midway through first year, but certainly by the end, that uh, what I uh, I still wanted to major in English, and I stuck with that, but that I wanted to keep going in philosophy, and I really enjoyed it. And then as as time went on, uh, I was getting to the end of to you know into senior years into senior years of undergrad, uh, knew I wanted to do grad work, and the question was English or philosophy, and uh, my. There were two things that were relevant. My marks were about 5 to 10% higher in philosophy, so that was a good argument in philosophy's favor. But also, I found um, as I went to higher and higher levels, I was more and more interested in the sorts of questions I was asking, work I was doing in philosophy, and getting a little less interested in the sort of work I was doing in English. And the work in English I was interested in doing mm-hmm. was kind of philosophy of literature anyway. So I veered into philosophy, um, did my master's at U of T, and then came here for the PhD.
0: Really, really interesting, so you kind of tied the loose ends together near the end and put yourself in the right uh, shoes in order to get where you wanted to be.
2: yeah, I, I sort of figured out what what I was, what was interesting me and realized that it was the the philosophical questions more than questions about literary style themes, et etc that were that were more interesting to me, and that that was what I wanted to keep doing as I went
1: That's really cool i mean it's It's nice to hear that you really dug deep. And fairly like early, you kind of narrowed it down. A lot of people struggle with that. Even the first question is, "What do Mm -hmm. I do?" Yeah, and you kind of got it down. And now you're here, and you're kind of like at the pinnacle, (laughs)
2: getting getting rapidly, rapidly approaching the
1: end. I mean, you're going to be a doctor soon, right?
2: (laughs) Well, things can still go wrong, but
1: no, that taste that. Yep, (laughs) I hope (laughs) so. So uh, so you're going to be a doctor, and you're going to be most knowledgeable about what? Why don't you tell us yeah. what your thesis is primarily on?
2: Sure. So I work in ethics, uh, and I work on um, methodology of ethics. So I work on uh, finding the best approach for answering the sorts of questions uh, ethicists and moral philosophers ask. So what are... What sort of background assumptions should we make when we're trying to ask moral questions, when we're asking what's, ri- what's the right thing to do, what makes an act right, what makes it good? Uh, I'm trying to figure out how we start out approaching those questions and especially how we approach those questions from the framework that, you know, we know certain things about humans from science, right? We know that we are the product of a long, long evolutionary line. That led to us. We know that our psych- we know that our psyches are made up in certain ways. We know that certain things are strong psychological motivators, partly owing to that evolutionary background. We know basically that the best theories of our best sciences more or less accurately describe the world. And given that, right, what restrictions does that place on how we can do ethics? Right, given that we know there's certain types of a certain type of being that we are. There's certain types of ways we interact with the world, and how does that affect how we think about what's right
0: so so you mentioned right and good and (laughs) how you get there the thought processes as well would you say that these uh concepts are more subjective in nature they vary based on culture or society time and history things like this
2: so i'm i sometimes just actively avoid trying to answer that (laughs) um but part of part of what led, led me to this line of research is I wanted to tackle those sorts of questions because those are the, the most typical some of the most typical questions in ethics and especially in meta ethics right Why, where do these um, where do moral claims get their force? are they universal sure. um, are they just a result of sort of what we collectively have agreed to either as a social uh, smaller social groups at say the level of a country or broader at the level of humans as a whole um, or uh, or, is there some sort of objective fact and it doesn't matter what society thinks right um there's a few and philosophers have had a lot of different views on this um there are ones who think no whatever your society agreed to right in the in the possible world where it's just normal to kill every third baby because that's just what we do when we've all decided that's okay it would be fine and then others say no even in the world where if there if there was a (laughs) world if everyone in the world thought killing every third baby is great no problems that's great, it would still be wrong. Uh, And I wanted to look at those questions and I sort of realized, I don't even know how you go about starting to answer that because there are um, not even competing approaches. There are several approaches taken to ethics and taken to moral philosophy and taken to trying to approach these kinds of questions. And they have, I I sort of realized as I was thinking about this and and writing more about this, they had very different views about what the goal of moral philosophy and what the goal of ethics is and what kind of a task we're performing when we do moral philosophy. And so I realized that if I wanted to try to answer these other questions I found interesting, I needed to take a step back and talk about what these methodological, these possible methodological approaches were and how they, what they, what I think they get right and what I think they get wrong in their views on the nature of moral inquiry and discourse
0: wow i think that's a really great approach and perspective to take Do, uh, have you focused on a lot of these uh, different competing or uh, yeah. differing approaches yeah, so there, there, are,
2: there are two broad approaches that you can break things into and two that i'm interested in um there's the what i refer to as the traditional or the non-empirical approach um, i know other people have used different terms these are the ones i like and that's the traditional method of philosophy where we figure out what's right by thinking about a bunch of cases and thinking well okay in this situation is this this action would be morally okay okay good this action would be wrong it would be it's wrong to torture babies for fun okay it's good to give to charity good okay and you pile up all of the you you know test your intuitions about particular cases and weird cases and you do the classic philosopher game of the thought experiment so you imagine a you know trolley situation trolley's barreling barre, eh, barreling down the track, Mm -hmm. it's going to hit five people if I do nothing, it's going to hit one person if I switch the track. It seems like it's right to switch the track, okay, but, so it seems like it's right to kill one person to save five, but then there's this other weird case where if I was a doctor and I could cut the organs out of one person to give transplants to five other people, that doesn't seem okay, and that's killing one to save five. So why are these different? And right, analyzing what the differences between these ideas are, what makes one right and the other wrong? And right, this also gets referred to as armchair philosophy. You don't need to be <laughs> out in the world. You sit and you think about it and you get really clear on your ideas. And then once you're really clear on the ideas, hey, you've solved it, everyone's happy. And so that's the one approach. Um, and that's the classic way of doing things. And then the other approach, um, it's been around for a very long time. It had a bit of a peak. Um, Shortly after Darwin, when the people in universities were getting more interested in evolution and what that meant for us. And then it really exploded with the rise of neuroscience and cognitive science and especially um, MRI work as we started to really be able to drill into a brain and look at what was happening. And some philosophers uh, have started looking at that and looking at, well, what do people actually do when they make these moral judgments? What's actually going on in the brain? What kind of what kind of things impact these decisions? How can we change what people what kind of reactions people have? Um, so, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work on that and has shown that um, disgust really tightly ties to moral judgment. If someone's disgusted by something, they'll tend to judge it as wrong, even if they can't point to a reason that it's wrong. If they're not, they won't tend to think it's wrong. And um, so, I've looked at those two accounts, and and I think about and I'm, I'm working looking at Uh, how they think about morality, what kind of task they think uh, moral philosophy is, what kind of questions they think moral questions are, and how that informs their approach.
1: Wow, that's cool. I mean, it almost sounds like you're creating a manual for people who want to start looking at ethics. You want to go to (laughs) ethics— Um, here are your options, and I'm going to put out the op uh, you know the b- pros and cons on both sides, and <laughs> you can choose your camp and go for it,
2: yeah. I, I have um in in slightly more arrogant moments claimed that my project is showing why everyone but me is doing moral philosophy wrong, so we can stop listening to everyone else and just listen to me about how you do it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, my my goal very much is to be able to say, well, look, the empirical approach has certain beliefs about what it is we're trying to do right the the empirical approach has certain beliefs about what kind of questions we're asking when we're trying to get at what's right and so for example I say they think the task of you have to if you're doing this work if your goal is to basically test as many people as possible find out what they think is right and draw big conclusions from that you have to think that part of the goal of ethics is to describe what our, correctly describe what our actual moral attitudes are. And I argue that that doesn't seem right because when I'm asking what's the right thing to do in this case, it doesn't seem like what I'm asking is what do I think is the right thing to do. Uh, or at least it seems like when I ask that question, I think that it's at least possible that my gut instinct could be wrong. So if I ask myself... Um, is physician-assisted suicide permissible? Is it okay for a doctor to administer drugs that will end a patient's life if that patient desires that and, and has been clear that that's what they want? And, you know, I have my, I have my intuitions about that. I have my views about, about, its, about its moral characteristics. But if I think there's more to it than just what I think, if I think, okay, I think it's okay, but is it really, right? Is, is it, does it conform to what's morally right in some way beyond just that I think that, I can't think that answering a descriptive question is going to be helpful. I can't think that you're just that just saying, "Oh yeah, well it turns out ninety-five percent people percent of people think it's okay." That see, at least seems to me that that doesn't answer my question. Right? For, my question uh, isn't what do people think. My question is what is right.
0: Of course, and, and it's I guess the four to five dentists recommend mm-hmm. uh, this uh, product kind of inquiry. Yeah. But bringing it back to the different perspectives or the pro- approaches that you were describing earlier, I, I guess. One approach would argue that it is okay to um, I guess, end one patient's life in order to give the organs to five others, for instance, mm-hmm. in order uh, because it's for the greater good, whereas the other perspective would argue, no, you can't do that. Why would you ever do that because you're harming a person? It's mm-hmm. a difference of perspectives on the same situation. Is that is
2: um, Well, so weirdly enough, this this is where um the the difference in the approach in the broad approaches right? in between taking the the empirical approach, the we solve ethics by studying people and what their attitudes really are and what they really think about what's right, and the traditional approach of we study ethics by thinking really hard about it, they don't necessarily get to different answers about what's right. Um, And in fact, if you look at a lot of them, when they get into more applied moral questions, they actually wind up broadly agreeing. They wind up, very few of them are going to say, yeah, you can torture whoever you want. It's great. torture's fun. Get on it. Few of them are going to say, you know, very few of them are going to say, what's that? You want to eat a corpse? You eat that corpse, right? They're not going to land on that. So there's um, very few questions. They're, they're going to, yeah, they actually don't differ so much on questions. They differ on how you get the answer to those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, different moral theories that are going to differ on um, on things like, can you kill one to save five? So, right, there are views like those of John Stuart Mill, traditionally the utilitarian and the consequentialist views that um, hold that all you look at is the outcome and you look at if it's the best outcome you could get to uh, and they will say and even they are hesitant to say the doctor should chop up that one person to save five but they'll give other reasons such as other long-term bad consequences of that not just that killing killing is bad in itself and then there's people like uh, Immanuel Kant or more recent uh, deontologists duty based ethics that'll say well, no, the reason it's wrong isn't because it leads to a bad outcome. The reason it's wrong to chop up a person to stick their organs in five other people <laughs> is because it's wrong to chop up a person by the time you're thinking about, well, what are the- let me do the, hold on, let me do the math on this. You've already, they, they would say, you've already made a mistake. You're, al- you're already evil. What <laughs> is wrong with you? And I guess Why is a... this what's stopping you? <laughs>
0: and, and I guess that question would uh, not be the best example, but going back to the trolley question, mm-hmm. where five versus one, you, uh, the trolley is going towards five people. It's going to hit them if you don't change the lever, but if you do mm-hmm. change the lever, then it's only going ki- to... So I guess that would be a better question to answer, or uh, to, to go about you know talking about that subject in the first well, Roger, place.
1: Roger, it, so- it sounds like... What he's looking at doesn't actually matter. What the question is, it's how you approach questions at all. Any question is that right? Well, and
2: how you what the what the step, how you approach questions and what you think the question is asking. I think might be the way to put oh, okay. it. Okay, um, I mean, does it just become or, a or, or how, how battle? you <laughs> kind of? Uh, I mean, it, it it may turn out certainly in contemporary analytic philosophy all of it's kind of a semantics battle on some level it's always about well what do these words mean and how are these words used Um, that's the the view that that's ultimately the question is sort of what led to conceptual analysis which is the major tool of contemporary philosophy which is you look at these words and you look at how they're used and you say right this would be a wrong way to use this term so this can't be part of the concept we're working with here whereas we do use the word this way so that's an appropriate use of the concept and things like that and so yeah the question Mm. is the question for me is what does it how do we even approach answering these questions to begin with how do we try to answer questions about what's right and what um, what does the way we answer it reveal about what we think not just a particular moral question but the question of what does it mean to be morally good means in the first place? Uh, it, and it, what that question is asking.
1: It sounds like it's uh, from from the kind of some of the examples you've weaved in there, mm-hmm. it sounds like often I'm not even sure I'm using the word right, but prescriptive. It sounds like this is That is the word I would use. The plan how we should do it. Can and can you look at this from another perspective? Does anyone mm. not look at it yeah, prescriptively?
2: Um, yeah. So there there's an old there is an old, old. Well, I'm, I'm saying old, old, old. But really, if I'm talking philosophy and using that many olds, I should be talking about like Plato, and I'm not. I'm talking about Hume, who's much more recent. But the one of the sort of dogmas of moral philosophy, longstanding views in moral philosophy, is the um, fact-value distinction or the is-ought gap, described most famously by Hume, who said, "I'm paraphrasing. These are not his exact words. This will be obvious because I'm using words that weren't <laughs> used at the time. You can." take all the descriptions of the world you want. You can line up all the facts of the world and every single description. This is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. If all you have is that, any conclusion you make about what should be the case is always not going to follow logically from what you had. You can't actually... You can't. It, it gets put as you can't derive an ought from an is. Um, so I can't say... So for instance... Um, a philosophy argues against. Use of baseball as an example. Um, batter hit the ball. The ball was caught by the was caught by the outfielder. The umpire said, "You're out." You can't. Therefore, that player should leave the field isn't actually a valid conclusion. You need something. You need something normative or prescriptive in those premises. Something which is something like. When the umpire has ruled that a player is out, that player should or must leave the field because these are the rules of baseball.
0: So, so now what if it's, like, if I drop an egg from the top of a building? Okay. Will it break?
2: Um, so you're going to wind... Um, so you're thinking Hume and the problem of induction? That That's kind of, yeah, along the lines okay. I was going towards. Yeah, so, so Hume, famous for... And he... By the way, people tend to treat him as being more skeptical about induction than he actually was. But he has there is this view in Hume that um, you can't, except for things that are pure deductive reasoning. Right? If it's raining, out, if it's raining outside, the streets are wet. It's raining, therefore the streets are wet. Anything um, that's not of that form, anything that's right, every time we've dropped an egg from more than a certain height, it breaks. Therefore, the next time we drop an egg from th- from greater than this height, it will break. Um, that's that's ultimately still going to be a descriptive claim on the understanding moral philosophers use. It's not about what should be the case in the sense of it's right to anticipate. It's it's that's ultimately a descriptive claim as well. And if so, sorry, go ahead.
0: no, just just in my understanding, I, would Hume argue that you can't ever you can't ever say yes for sure because there are circumstances or variables that can come into play that you can never be sure of. The, the wind could be blowing 100 kilometers an hour upwards and cushion the, the, the egg to the ground, or, mm-hmm. or it could land on a trampoline, or somebody could catch it at the bottom. It, there's infinite number of circumstances that could make your potential or anticipated conclusion incorrect.
2: So for Hume, it's not so much about um, that there can be other circumstances you're not aware of. Um, I think for Hume, even if you knew all the relevant circumstances and even if you could be... Certain that they were in that, that all of the relevant circumstances were in play, even if you okay. could know that the wind's normal, the ground is normal, conditions are as you would expect them to be, mm-hmm. or sure. within a reasonable variance thereof, such that it's not important. Okay. He would still say you don't technically have certainty that it'll break. You just have a very, a very, very high degree of confidence. And what people leave out when talking about Hume is. By the way, he thinks that very high degree of confidence is more than enough for us to go about our day. You don't actually need certainty, <laughs> but that you can't you can't ever hit certainty in um, flip, in situations like that like because because certainty is very much it's it's actually just an idea that's still reflected in how we talk about probability. Um, right, probability zero is it logically can't happen. Right, so for something to have a probability of zero, it has to be literally impossible, not just practically impossible. Sure, sure. Similarly, probability one is not just, it's incredibly likely, not just we are very sure, it's its somehow logically contradictory for this not to happen. Otherwise, your probability is always somewhere between the two. Wow. And Hume very much falls in that. its You have a very high probability that this thing will happen, and it's extremely high and high enough that you should just treat it like it's going to happen because you can't spend your life paralyzed by that minuscule chance of change but you're technically not that proper sense of a hundred percent certain and so bear in mind your fallibility as you go about the world um and and that's where he gets into things that's ultimately what gets into things like his no miracles argument right he thinks you should never believe someone when they tell you a miracle occurred and it's basically because the odds of them being wrong are way 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 higher than the odds of a miracle because of what we know about the physical world and that Miracles, by definition, break all of our understanding of the physical world, and we should be more confident in that <laughs> than in someone's perception because we know all the ways perception goes wrong.
1: This actually, That actually ties in a little bit to what I was intending to ask, all which right. was, you know, you, the second the word moral mm-hmm. comes up in conversation for someone who's not a philosopher, mm-hmm. more often than not, you're in a conversation about religion all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yes. So, so how does, I mean... Y- in all this talk we actually religion wasn't even mentioned and I did, from the different methods it seems like they don't use religion well, in their methods there's so cer- there certainly are philosoph- there certainly exist philosophers
2: who um, who tie moral goodness and moral rightness to religion but it's it's not it's certainly not a popular dominant view in philosophy even among even among religious philosophers and there were studies on this a, High number very 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 high number of philosophers are atheist or agnostic but even among religious philosophers um alvin Plantinga, for example does a lot of work and is very religious catholic um and does a lot of work on mainly on knowledge and epistemology but some work on ethics as well even the religious philosophers don't tend to use uh religion as the justification um, and it, it actually goes back to Plato. There's a well, and technically Socrates, it was when Plato was still just writing down Socrates' ideas instead of developing his own. And there's a question that's asked uh, in the Euthyphro. I hope I'm right about which one it is. I'm 99% sure and that's more than good enough for me. Um, and the question is, well what makes something good? And the person re- and the, you know, the Platonic things are all written as dialogues, and the person responds, "Ah, that's easy. What's good is what the gods love. Socrates says, oh, Oh, that's, yeah, that's nice. Um, One thing I'm not clear on. So good is what the gods love. Yep. Do the gods love it because it's good, or is it good because the gods love it? And the person says, oh. Oh, um, well, they love it because it's good, because they couldn't love something that was evil. If they loved something that was evil, that wouldn't make it good. And he says, oh, okay. Well, so then it's not good because they, so then... What's good isn't what the gods love. There is some other thing in virtue of which the gods love it, in virtue of which it's good. Uh, and philosophers have more or less kind of stuck to that view since. It's um the view um we talk with it sometimes it's called um voluntarism, and it's I, I can't remember the origin of that term off the top of my head, but it was the
0: utilitarian
2: or no, um not, not but it's basically oh yes, you should do you should do what God commands, but the it winds up being an unsatisfactory answer because on almost any religious tradition, um things are good not just because God says they're good. There is something else, right? God is good and it's not just that it's God's word that says that. And so that's ultimately not the justification. It's more a good way to know that you're right. And so philosophers, even religious philosophers, don't tend to talk about God or religion as the source of morality they talk about these traits and it's oh and by the way those are exactly the ones that religion will pick out because it's looking for these sorts of things and it's normally right causes benefit to a wide number of people obeys certain rules that are good for other reasons um, and exactly which ones you have are going to depend largely on that's, which
1: philosopher you talk to. That's really interesting that you say that um, and, and I like that you you premised it with like this is what most philosophers say mm-hmm. because I've more often than not heard from religious people I've spoken to or heard from they, they don't they, they don't say it like that. they mm-hmm. do say, yeah, no, it's it's the other way around. it's God yeah the, it's because the, yeah and the God. yeah the it's can because you be, God that's the answer
2: yeah, and the can you be good without God question is is a long running one, but it, yeah it's it's one of those places where at least again, I can't claim to know the views of every philosopher, but where they certainly would kind of say, well, well no, they, certainly that's not the reason. Um, and certainly you can be good without God. It's just a question of performing the right sorts of actions for the right reasons and whether or not that reason's God. Hey. Um, but, yeah, whereas the public discourse very much does sit on the um, especially not so much in, say, here and the U.K., but certainly in America, you, you get that very much. Well, you can't trust someone who doesn't believe in God. They have no reason to be good. No. And philosophers, at least, at least as I see it from what I from knowing, you know, talking to people, I don't know a lot of people who buy that argument. There's certainly not a lot in the literature of people who really buy that argument as that's what's necessary for goodness. Um, It's very much a a big break between where philosophers have landed on this and where sort of public discourse is.
0: I I also... believe that you know religion and God become um, c- confused and used interchangeably uh, too often in, in these kinds of circumstances. And uh, at the same time, on top of the whole religion argument, I, I do believe that your work would apply to a large extent uh, in the same way to politics, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in at least in North America and probably spreading throughout the world. Unfortunately, we're just about <laughs> at the end of the time. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> uh, I, I I really think though, Chris, you should be uh, you should come back on the show to, to to give that a whole whole role on its maybe, own.
1: Maybe maybe the whole episode will be designated to politics I mean, in that I,
2: case. I, as I said, I'm, I'm always I am always happy to go hard
1: on politics. I, <laughs> that I think that it's harder need, to get me not to do that.
0: We need to have you back on the show, then, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Um,
1: well, um, before we before we let you go. Um, maybe you can give us a little moral <laughs> advice oh, for God. someone who who wants to go your path, sure. right? And sure. and then give... also tell people who who wanna talk to you more where they can get a hold of you. All
2: right. So yeah, um, best place to track me down is probably my Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash Chris Sheriff, C H R I S S H I R R E F F. Um, it's it's private, but I accept pretty much any follow request. Um, It's mostly to keep potential employers from seeing what I'm up to. Uh, Best piece of advice I can give? Yeah, that one's easy. Don't ever follow moral philosopher's advice. There's actually studies on this. They are less likely to behave morally than people who study anything else in philosophy or the general world, and they're less likely to be morally consistent. They will say, oh, yeah, definitely wrong to eat meat. They are even more likely to eat meat than the general population. They will say, oh, it's always wrong to steal library books. Most commonly stolen library books? ethics books okay. don't trust us there's my advice all right okay i
1: guess on that note that, <laughs> that's a really strongly held uh, opinion on a, on a on a on a good piece of advice i suppose so we're glad to have you thank you so much and so much. uh we will try and have you again one of these days but with that we're gonna end the show thanks everybody for listening if you are listening on the radio then you'll know we're on chrw 94.9 fm 6 p.m every tuesday And every Tuesday, we also publish the podcast, not only on the radio, but as a podcast, wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify nowadays. We have it there as well. Follow us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, at our handle, Gradcast Radio. And if you want to get a hold of us, it's real easy. Just email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And that's if you want to be a host and join us on this side of the mic, or if you want to be a guest and you're a grad student here at Western. Also, the episodes are available on our website, gradcast.ca. This has been GradCast, a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for
0: us by Matthew Becker.